Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today I am back in the Project Purple studio and we're on the phone with a new good friend of mine, Dr. Bryson Katona at UPenn. Bryson, how are you? Oh, doing great. Thanks so much for the invitation. Really looking forward to uh, talking with you today. Well, thanks for, I know this has been a, a little bit in the making. Um, this will air in, in probably uh, a couple of weeks, if not, a, it quite possibly could be two months from now. As we are recording, we are in uh, this current crisis, as we will call it, the COVID crisis, I guess is the best term that we're involved and thrust in. So you're working from home. I'm in the home studio, uh, home studio number two, I guess here um, in the podcast studio. And so, uh, you know, just to give our, our listeners just kind of idea of when we are recording this, because it is such a fluid time, not that we're going to talk about COVID, we might mention a little bit about the work you're doing and, and how that's impacted with COVID here in, in, in a little bit on the, on the episode. But for our listeners at home, first things first, full disclosure, Bryson and I met, uh, we've known each other for a couple months now. Um, you're the lead at Penn for our Proceed project, our Proceed Consortium, which Penn is involved. So you and I have got to meet each other physically, over the phone, over webinars, over the, it's probably been almost a year, I would think, Bryson. I think that when all this kind of started with Proceed in, in terms for of- For sure. And also full disclosure, you were on our New York City half team, for 2020, trained, did a great job fundraising, was one of the first people to step up when Dr. Simeone, who's at NYU, who's been on the podcast, started calling scientists out <laughs> in the entire Precede Consortium back in December in New York. I think you had signed down before that, but, she, but you were one of the first to sign up. Um, but she started like calling people out and started giving people kind of the stink eye if they weren't going to run. Uh, but you, you trained, you ran, you fundraised. And then unfortunately the race was canceled due to COVID, but you still ran your 13 miles. You actually uh, ran 13.4 yeah. cause it was on Pi day. For sure. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I made the commitment. I, I promise I did a lot of fundraising. Uh, you know, obviously this is for a great cause to, to benefit project purple and, you know, for everybody that I did the fundraising for, I made that commitment that I was going to run it. Uh, I trained for it. And so, uh, wasn't quite as exciting running uh, 13.4 around my the streets around my neighborhood, but but I got got the miles in, so uh, I got a good workout out of it, and and uh, you know at least uh, for the people who who gave their hard earned money to to support me, you know I, I felt that I could had at least completed the, that task for them. Awesome, awesome, and, and I got to ask you one more question on the, on the running. Have you continued to run? Yeah, you know, to be honest, uh, I, you know, at this point, as as you said, we're in uh, mid-April now when we're recording this. But uh, being homebound, uh, you know, I think running is one of the only ways I can get exercise now, and so I feel like I've been running more than um, more than I had uh, even uh, pre-training for the for the marathon, um, just because that's essentially the only way to get exercise nowadays. Yeah, which is uh, so, running's having a boom. Yeah, that's it's crazy. Like there's there's people running that never ran before because of this. So, so, so socially distanced running though. Correct. Uh, correct. Uh, yes. Running running by running by myself. Correct. <laughs> correct. So, and I I just bring that up because I spoke with Dr. Simeone. Uh, I think it was like two weeks ago, and she's like, you know, I haven't stopped running. You know, and she's like, and for her, she she uh, roped her husband Ted into it as well. So they were like, I think it's because their thing you know they're both physicians and both surgeons so you know busy schedules and and uh, they also have a family as well that they're managing at home so you know it became this really kind of uh bonding thing so well thank you for oh, yeah. everything you've done so far for project purple what we always do as custom with all our guests because some people in the scientific community that listen to this podcast are going to know your name but there's people that aren't in the scientific community that maybe have never been to your clinic there at the University of Pennsylvania that don't know you, but what is customary is we always allow our guests an opportunity to share their background. And I always preface this before you start speaking is you can go as far back of your background as you want, and then we'll go from there. All right. Great, great. Thanks, Dino. Um, 
Yeah, so just a little background of uh, where I am now, and then I'll take a step or two back. So I'm a gastroenterologist by by training, and uh, I'm on faculty now at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, really, my, my main role there is I serve as the director of the gastrointestinal cancer genetics program. And so that incorporates uh, several facets, uh, one of which is the cancer risk evaluation program, where we see patients who may be at increased risk for, for cancer and, and do genetic testing. I also follow uh, a lot of people in our gastrointestinal cancer genetics clinic where we, we follow individuals who are already at known increased risk and follow them longitudinally and make sure that we're doing all of the appropriate surveillance from, from them. Uh, but I actually started out uh, as an undergrad back at Penn in the, in, in the late 90s. Uh, and uh, started out there, but then did all of my medical training uh, out at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, where I, I did an MD-PhD out there. PhD was focused primarily on uh, wet bench uh, laboratory science. I was a PhD in biochemistry. Uh, but then after after finishing up medical school, uh, my wife and I, all of our family was back on the East Coast. So so we uh, headed, headed back east, uh, back to uh, to Philadelphia. And uh, since 2009, I've, I've basically been back at Penn ever since then. So hard to believe, uh, you know, over 10 years uh, being back there now. Wow. So with the, uh, I got a question for you because this is fascinating and I've heard this before and we've had clinicians on the podcast that have this dual designation that I guess I'll call it the MD and then the PhD. So you get mm -hmm. your PhD at uh, WashU. Or did you have that prior to when you when you had that at Penn? Yeah, I, I got that at, at WashU. Um, it was uh, they, most of these programs are called uh, MSTP or Medical Scientist Training Programs, where you know really the the, the goal is that uh, people who commit to the program will be able to 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 leave with with completing both of the the degrees. Um, it's a it's a it's a really great program. Um, definitely takes longer than, than, than the standard, uh, medical school. So, yeah. uh, typ typically medical school is about four years, uh, MD PhD programs can, can range somewhere between, uh, seven years to, to nine years, depending on, uh, how, how, how quickly or how, how well the, the PhD research, uh, tends to, tends to work out. Um, and most of these programs are designed such that you, uh, do two years of, of general medical school training, then you uh, go into the laboratory to do, to do the PhD with the thought that having the medical training uh, will help you uh, uh, get more out of the PhD and, and be able to see, you know, uh, kind of have a clinical mindset uh, when you're going through the PhD. And then after completing the PhD, then you kind of go full circle and go back and finish your clinical rotations at the hospital. So I thought it was a fantastic program, and I think it, you know, really equipped me well to be a be a physician, to be a researcher, um, but also to be a, the kind of the coined term now as a physician scientist or someone who can really bridge the gap between uh, clinical care and and uh, effective research. So it's it's fascinating to me because this is not a normal trek, though, right? I mean, mo most people either go into a lab. Um, and with their PhD or go into the clinic as an MD, was there a, I don't know if we would call it a tipping point or was there a situation at some point for you personally that you said, Hey, like I'm going to do both here and, and extend this and, and, you know, go this direction versus leaning to the left or to the right. Uh, you know, I, I think it was, uh, um, it wasn't a personal experience that I, I had myself. I think it was more of uh, mentors uh, that, that I had had. And um, I had had some uh, uh, physician mentors uh, throughout the years that, that really successfully um, did great research, uh, great laboratory research, great clinical science research, and just provided top-notch uh, patient care. And, and working with them, just seeing how much they – they they really enjoyed their career. They enjoyed their uh, you know the patients. They enjoyed the research, and seeing how the the patient care and the research could really uh, support one another and drive one another, I thought was just uh, really really phenomenal. Um, and so I think it was really really old mentors that I had that 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 
really convinced me that this was the way to go. Was there one mentor in particular that kind of pushed you that way? I know we've we've had some clinicians on that have mentioned some people and wondering if there's any overlap. Well, yeah, so um the the mentor actually that was uh that got me to go into gastroenterology it was it was at WashU his name was uh uh Bill Stenson in the division of gastroenterology um uh, at WashU and uh you know he was he was a uh, real classic physician scientist did great research uh did uh, uh, exceptional patient care and and so he, uh, he was one of one of uh many who have influenced me over the years um, as far as as far as my you know once I got in my interest uh, really focused on hereditary cancer predisposition um, my the mentor who really uh, drove me in that direction was uh, my my previous division chief of gastroenterology at, at Penn actually his name was Anil Rustigi. Oh, yeah. uh, he's he's currently the uh, cancer center director at, at Columbia University uh, but he was a division chief at Penn for for 20 years. And, um, you know, he had an interest in hereditary cancer predisposition, including uh, for pancreatic cancer. Uh, he did fantastic uh, basic science research, and, and he, he made a, a, a real great imprint on me as I did my training there and, and, and when I was early faculty at Penn. And um, so I think that, you know, my current interest in hereditary cancer predisposition is, is largely in part due to, due to his guidance. So if we just take a step back, um, you know, and I know we've had, like, we've had Dr. Amy Lucas at Mount Sinai recently on the podcast, and, and I approached mm-hmm. the subject with her as I'm going to, or the question as I'm going to approach it with you is, you know, GI cancer is so, so broad, right? Because it goes from the, she, she explained it from the mouth to the anus, really, right? Like from the, <laughs> right, from, right. <laughs> from the front to the back, I think was what she said. And so... <laughs> Why pancreatic cancer specifically focus here? Because there's so many directions and so many, you know, other organs in that GI tract that you can focus on. And that's always kind of my number one question, you know, is I, I mean, I know why my reasons are, but, you know, it's always interesting to hear why clinicians like really dive in and, and dive in like no other into this disease. Right, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a great question, and and you know, I think it. I, I think it's the you know, it's the need. Um, it's the need for 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 more research and, and better research for for pancreatic cancer. You know, I think of all the gastrointestinal cancers. I mean, I think that need the uh, need for for you know improved diagnosis, earlier diagnosis, better treatment. Um, you know, is is certainly the highest for for pancreatic cancer. Um, and so I think it's, you know, seeing that need, you know, really to me emphasizes how, how important that field is and, and was certainly a big driver into getting me to, uh, uh, you know, go into that direction. Was there a, a case anywhere along the history of, of you being involved in the clinic that kind of really still stands out to this day of someone that, you know, was a patient or a family that just really touched you that, you know, just kind of resonates with the, the mission of, you know, doing what you're doing? Yeah. You know, I think it's, uh, um, I think it's, it's many, many patients and many, many families. Um, you know, one, uh, one very nice thing about, uh, being in, in, hereditary cancer predisposition uh, is that, you know, you do, you get to know patients, but you also get to know the families, um, you know, you treat the family members. Um, and so, you know, becoming uh, close to all these, these individuals, uh, being able to, you know, help them manage their, 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 their risk and their, and their fears uh, related to pancreatic cancer um, is, I mean, each, each patient I see that, that, that I can interact with in that way really is, is, is moving and, and, and really reinforces my, um, you know, desire, uh, to, to, to stick with it, um, in, in pancreatic cancer. Yeah. It's, and then bring that up and not to put you on the spot, but I, you know, I always ask the researchers, the clinicians, I mean, we know from a financial standpoint, there's just not enough funding in the disease. So, you know, it, 
if someone is coming out of school, it's just fascinating to me or getting into the space. Like what are the, what are the motive, what are the motivations, you know, because from a funding you're fighting, you know, for funding, you know, at the national level, there's not a lot of groups, you know, globally that are fighting it in terms of, you know, there, there's 94 groups globally, but you know, in terms of if we compared breast cancer to pancreatic cancer in terms of the gross number that's raised, I mean, it dwarfs, it dwarfs, uh, you know, breast cancer dwarfs what pancreatic cancer raises on a global level. So where the money <laughs> is in terms of research and, and resources, there isn't that much on, on the pancreatic cancer side. So I appreciate you being open and honest with that, because I think that's something that, you know, I think is, is something special about this space that, you know, the clinicians that are in it, um, some of them do have a connection. I know, I know I've met a couple that, you know, have lost a parent or a grandparent, but a lot of them are in it because they just, they, they do it for the right reasons they are in it and they're trying to help people and trying to beat this thing. And, and we need more people like that, like yourself and the other clinicians out there that are doing that. I want yeah, to for sure. I think I, I'm always. Uh, I was going to say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm I'm always uh, trying to look at look look as an, as an optimist. But you know, I yeah. know funding is always funding is always challenging. But you know, the the way I think of it is that um, you know, if it's something that I that I have a passion about and something that I enjoy um, and something that I think is going to do good, you know, uh, in, in in my mind, the uh, you know, the the fund the funding will come. Um, but I think it's m the most important thing is 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 doing. Uh, doing something that that is important for patients and, and important for those who are at risk. If you build it, they'll come, as we say, right? Like for uh, sure, you know, for sure. That's what we're all trying to do is just to build it. I want to talk a little bit about the stuff, you know, the work you guys are doing at, at Penn Medicine, and, and I know again we're recording this during this COVID crisis, so we're we can talk about what it looks like now. But let's take a step back and maybe go back to the beginning of the year. And, and if you, even we want to back up a little bit more, you know, what, what, what kind of work are you guys doing there? How's it set up? Um, I know, you know, you talked about dealing with families. So for audience listening at home, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I can tell you about several different compartments of our, of, of our program. Um, so let me start start a little bit more with the, the uh, clinical side of things um, and then, then uh, go into the research if that's okay with you. Um, uh, for our uh, clinical side of the program, um, we have two components. Really, uh, one of our components is our uh, cancer risk evaluation program. And so this is really designed for uh, patients who uh, potentially be at, at risk for pancreatic cancer. Um, so it's patients that, that may you know, have a family history uh, of pancreatic cancer, or they may have a family history of some other cancers that, that may be related to a genetic risk that may also increase the risk for pancreatic cancer. And so this is a, a a clinic that has just really been seeing an, an increasing volume of, of, of people being referred. I think it's interesting because I think we've been seeing a lot more self-referrals. I think, uh, you know, as people read more about hereditary cancer and, 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 and cancer risk, uh, they're, they're more self-aware of this and are certainly wanting to, to get evaluated. But then also other physicians are, are becoming more aware of it as well. Um, and so uh, the referrals really are uh, um, uh, th through the roof, uh, which, is, which, is, which is great to see. Um, usually when we see patients in, in the cancer risk evaluation clinic, uh, it's, we'll see them with uh, myself or one of, my, one of my partners as well as uh, one of our team genetic counselors. Uh, so we have six genetic counselors uh, that, that work with us through the cancer center, um, all of who are, are fantastic. And um, uh, between the two of us, you know, uh, we will uh, evaluate patients, their family history, their risk factors, um, send genetic testing if it's deemed necessary, and then ultimately uh, develop a, a monitoring plan uh, for them if, if they're at increased risk for, for pancreatic cancer. And so I think that's a really uh, important program um, uh, because I think that, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, guidelines and, 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 and what to do for people at increased risk for pancreatic cancer, I think that a lot of people in the medical community 
don't really know what the right answer is. And, and, uh, and there's just a lot of patients will oftentimes give a lot of uh, mixed messages um, um, uh, from, from multiple different care providers. So we try to at least give them a, a more uh, straightforward approach where we, where we review all of their, their risk factors and, and uh, develop a comprehensive plan for them. Um, once, uh, once patients are, are diagnosed or once we evaluate their risk, maybe they maybe they carry hereditary risk, maybe they, maybe they don't. Um, uh, we then often will follow these, these individuals on, on a yearly basis, uh, to keep up with any kind of, uh, early detection modalities that they may be participating in. Uh, but then also to just keep an update, uh, keep updating and, and checking on their family history and other risk factors. Um, because just because somebody's evaluated for pancreatic cancer risk, uh, you know, at one point, things may change. And so, you know, a couple years down the road, if, if uh, another relative's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer or if the patient develops new onset diabetes, uh, there may be other risk factors that come up that may, may heighten how we... Uh, uh, how, you know, how we monitor them for, for their risk. Uh, so I think, you know, from a clinical side, you know, we have a very, very uh, uh, robust clinic. Um, um, and, and, and of course, uh, you know, we see a, lar- um, a lot of patients from all throughout the Philadelphia area, but also um, throughout Pennsylvania, um, down into Northern Maryland and Delaware. And, and uh, even uh, we, get a, we get a few from, uh, from, from, uh, Upstate New York, uh, that area as well. Um, now, from from the research pers- research side of things, uh, we have really a lot of uh, really exciting studies uh, that that are ongoing. Um, so we have both clinical uh, research uh, that's that's a big area of focus for us, but we also have a lot of basic science or laboratory research that, that's also a big focus uh, for us. And so for the uh, clinical side of research, uh, most of our efforts are focused on, on early detection um, uh, in pancreatic cancer. And we have uh, multiple ongoing uh, studies looking at uh, basically uh, surveillance or regular imaging of patients at increased risk for pancreatic cancer, um, basically studying uh, which methods of imaging are going to be better for early detection of pancreatic cancer and, and which groups, uh, which high risk groups are potentially going to uh, benefit the most from that. Um, so I'm sure, and I know some of the other uh, people on your podcast have, have been involved in some of these studies uh, as, as well. Um, but uh, two of the ones that we're involved in, one is uh, called the PANFAM study, which mm-hmm. is a, a blood-based uh, biomarker. Uh, study that's that's an international study. I think they probably got close to 20, uh, 20 centers now. Um, about probably probably about half of those in the U.S. Um, uh, the others uh, mostly in in Europe. Um, and they were also part of a, the CAPS five study, which is a, a, a multi institutional uh, study that's run through uh, Johns Hopkins, yep. um, basically. Um, Following uh, patients at increased risk for pancreatic cancer in a in a large uh, uh, national cohort, um, so you know there's really a lot of uh, uh, lot of uh, you know studies going on. And when I you know when I see patients if if they're gonna if they're at high risk for pancreatic cancer and, and they're gonna undergo uh, surveillance, um, you know I really I do try to uh, encourage them to to participate in the study uh, because you know it's an area where you know, we, we, we don't know 100% if, if uh, surveillance for pancreatic, for early pancreatic cancer uh, works or not. And so, you know, everybody that, that's undergoing uh, surveillance, I think, really just needs, you know, it, it's, it's a benefit to everybody to, to have that captured in one of the ongoing uh, studies. That's so awesome. Um, I, I got a question that came, I got a couple questions here just to stay on this point here. You mentioned high risk families and, and high risk mm-hmm. patients. How are you guys defining high risk? I mean, I know you mentioned prior, you know, genetic counseling. So I would imagine the process is someone who quote unquote air quotes here, high risk comes in, sits down with a genetic counselor, they go through genetic testing. And then depending on those results, if they have a, a a germline mutation that is discovered that requires monitoring, 
then they are monitored. Um, maybe just give our audience kind of an, a, a definition of what you guys are defining as high risk and just making sure that we're all on the same page in terms of terminology as well, which I think is important. Cause I think as people say, Oh, I had genetic testing like 15 years ago. And you know, I'm sure maybe you've had patients come in the clinic and we always say, well, it's changed a little bit. You know, you should maybe get retested. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so for when, when we say, when we say high risk, um, uh, referring to, to two different groups. So, or several different groups. Um, so uh, one one group of high risk individuals are, are those that, despite having genetic testing, all, all genetic testing is negative. Uh, but they just have a very strong family history of, of pancreatic cancer. Um, and so usually to fall in kind of that that high risk group, um, which we would consider familial pancreatic cancer, uh, people have to have two relatives with pancreatic cancer. Um, those two relatives have to be related to one another by a first degree relation. So, you know, say for example, a mother and a grandmother or something, something of that nature. Um, and so, you know, having, having two relatives, uh, with pancreatic cancer certainly puts you in that, that high risk group. Um, the other, the other people, kind of the other high risk group are those that have a, a genetic predisposition that, that we can detect. Um, and so in, in those cases, uh, individuals that have a genetic predisposition, such as a mutation in BRCA2 or Lynch syndrome, um, uh, if they have uh, one family member with pancreatic cancer, usually that's enough to, for us to classify them as high risk as well. Um, but I would like to, you know, get back to that point that you mentioned about genetic testing, um, you know, this is something uh, I, I deal with this on a weekly basis in, in clinic, but I think there's so much misperception out there um, about what is what, what counts as genetic testing. You know, as you mentioned, you know, having genetic testing 10 years ago certainly doesn't mean that it's it's up to today's standards. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's just I think it's really important for people to realize how fast the field of genetic testing is is moving. I think it's it's. Uh, um, Cancer genetics, I think, is probably one of the, if not the fastest uh, field uh, moving in, in medicine nowadays. Um, just with the advancements in genetic testing technology, we've been able to uh, test more people. We can test people quickly and 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 for for very low cost. And just to kind of give you a, a you know a little bit of a framework for that, you know, ten years ago, if somebody wanted to have uh, one or two genes, genetic testing performed on one or two genes. Uh, this is 10 years ago. It was, you know, it could be thousands of dollars, multiple thousands of dollars. Um, the turnaround time would often take, take months. Uh, but now when we see patients in clinic, uh, we can send, uh, these large panels that, that look at multiple different genes simultaneously. So 40, 50, 60, 70 genes all at once. Uh, we get results back in two or three weeks, and patients usually will have no more than a $250 out-of-pocket cost. And so it's just the uh, the revolution in genetic testing has has been absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, I think for pancreatic cancer uh, assessment, it's it's really opened doors for us to to test people nowadays who, you know, we may not consider as viable testing candidates five or ten years ago. Uh, but it allows us to test them uh, easily and 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 cheaply now, um, which is uh, just really really fan really fantastic that the field has has moved so fast and so far. It's so fascinating to me, and I get really excited and, and a little bit geeked out a bit. You know that this is happening, and it's happening like right in this. I mean you know, your example is, is awesome. And I, I have a personal one, like my mom, you know, went through breast cancer back in 2001. And then again in 2016. And I remember in 2001, you know, they wanted insurance wanted $4,000 and it wasn't, mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. wasn't required and we couldn't pay out of pocket. Fast forward to 2016, you know, 15 years later, and it was free. 
<laughs> you know, and, and everything right, was right. free, <laughs> you know, her, they, they offered her, you know, to do a, a double and, and reconstruction and insurance would pay for it. And, you know, um, it, it's just so fascinating. And, and, you know, now fast forward even 2016 and I say free because she had breast cancer, you know, it wasn't free. Mm-hmm. Like she didn't get it just because she wanted it. But even now, I mean, like you said, there's it's 250. I know there's some companies that are doing them for free. I mean, the technology is moving so fast and so quick. And that's something that, you know, I'm glad we're on this topic and maybe we can spend a, a couple more minutes here because I think this is something that for audience listening at home, you know, and, and I will be the first to say it, Bryson, like I was against genetic testing um, when my mom uh, found out that she was BRCA2 positive. Um, she stressed that my brother and I, because of what we experienced with my dad and then with her, you know, diagnosis uh, of having breast cancer again for the second time to, to really do it. And I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do it. And then I got, I had kind of a, a weird like sickness. Um, I got sick. I, my gallbladder was, was, uh, was blocked. Um, but I had all these crazy things going on and then I was like, okay, I'll do it. Um, because I was really sick and it was the best thing that I ever decided to do because now I know. And, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's so fascinating, you know, because I've talked to families and they're like, well, it's really expensive. There's still this like nihilism or there's this, this thought that it's thousands and thousands of dollars. And then that is not the case. So for audience listening at home, if the, if the excuse has been, um, you know, money, well, guess what? It doesn't cost you, you know, in most cases, anything, if they do the, 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 the proper paperwork, which most nurse navigators and genetic counselors know how to navigate through the insurance system. And if, and if it's still an issue, there's so many programs, there's actually a group now that's actually providing, you know, cost reimbursement for patients that insurance does not pick up for genetic testing, you know, and this is something with Precede that we'll talk about later in the, in the, the conversation, you know, that we're, we're talking to now about, you know, helping centers, you know, that have patient families that, you know, cost is still a barrier to, to help offset that. So it's really fascinating what's happened. It's kind of exciting. I mean, you know, and and the other thing to that, and I had a note here too, that I was going to bring up, um, you know, I don't know if 23andMe or, um, Ancestry.com have helped push this, um, you know, to where the costs have come down and, you know, the access to these tests. That'd be an interesting maybe exercise to look back if because of those consumer markets that aren't reliable for true genetic testing, um, just put that out there for our audience. We don't want yeah. anyone doing 23andMe to, to find out if they're BRCA positive. Um, but I wonder if that's kind of driven the pricing down and, and maybe, you know, everyone else has now have to step their game up, you know, in some way. Yeah, I think, you know, there is this great, co- you know, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the dr- driving the cost down has been uh, due to the multiple different laboratories as well. And so, you know, there's four or five uh, uh, very reputable uh, genetic testing uh, laboratories now. And, you know, I really, they've been uh, duking it out uh, with lowering the prices with, you know, improving their technology for, for years now. And uh, so it's, you know, it's great for, for patients uh, from, from a cost perspective. Um, we often wonder, you know, uh, uh, how it is that they're, they're getting by charging so little for genetic testing. Um, but, you know, this, that, that healthy competition amongst the labs, I think, has been, has been incredibly important. Uh, you know, I would like to just go back real quickly to the, you know, the to 23andMe uh, situation. Um, so, so 23andMe and Ancestry.com, you know, I think that there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of danger that can uh, be out there with with those those results. Um, and I think that we've had we've had I've had numerous cases where uh, people have. Um, had these done, uh, usually more, it's, uh, more 23 and me cause that, that focuses more on the, on the, uh, risk, uh, factors. Uh, but, but people get a very, can get a very false sense of reassurance, uh, from those, uh, commercial genetic tests, which, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I call them genetic testing for fun. Yeah. Uh, but not, but not for actual medical decision making. Um, but, but there's been many people who have had a false sense of reassurance. But then, once they come into a cancer genetics program and 
and get, um, you know, true medical genetic testing, uh, you know, they, they may, they may learn, uh, uh, different things that, you know, they may potentially have genetic risk that, you know, was certainly never going to be, uh, uh, communicated to them through these direct to consumer tests. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Um, it's fascinating. I wonder, and I, and I've had a person that I know who is BRCA positive, who did the 23 and me, and it came back negative. So I know that there's a huge, you know, it's it, the, the 23 and me is, uh, you know, a consumer based for profit model. Um, and I'm not, I'm sure the rest are, um, you know, the labs, they, they, they are to make money. Um, but you know, that from a quality and compliance, you know, is much greater at a, a medical lab that is, you know, facilitated through your physician or genetic counselor than the 23andMe adaptive model that's, you know, direct to consumer, you know, and I, I think that's something that, you know, hopefully our audience at home takes heed in this, that, you know, the statement that, you know, you really have to go see these specialists. You have to go to, you know, the clinic there at UPenn, meet with the, you know, yourself, your partner, and then the genetic counselors, because you can't rely on this over-the-counter, you know, 23andMe. And that's something that I know we've talked about before on the podcast. Um, and, you know, the other thing, you know, to go back to, you know, people who have done it years ago, we've we've had people that we've talked to at Project Purple, and they've said, oh, yeah, I did genetic counseling. You know, I did genetic testing, excuse me, you know, 15 years ago, and nothing was found. Well, you know, and maybe we can spend some time on this subject is, you know, these these new genes that we're finding or these variants, you know, that uh, of unknown discovery potentially, you know, that we haven't discovered yet. So it's really critical if you've gone, what would you say, Bryson, you know, in the last 10 years, and maybe you've had another family member diagnosed with pancreatic cancer to go get another look, not to, not to scare everyone that you need to go right away, but, you know, people, let's say that have had genetic testing in the last 20 years, nothing came up, but then all of a sudden, you know, a grandparent, a parent, a sibling gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Do you think those folks should maybe go back and get genetic testing again? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, to be honest, I would say that if your genetic testing was, you know, even if it was 10 years ago, even if nothing's changed in your family, it's it's not a, not a bad idea to go get reevaluated, um, because you know from a pancreatic cancer perspective, uh, you know we're identifying more and more genes that are responsible for pancreatic cancer risk that you know even ten years ago uh, were not appreciated to be pancreatic cancer risk genes, um, and certainly ten years ago were not being tested for uh, regularly with genetic testing. And so I do, you know, I think even even without necessarily a, a change in family history, you know, if the genetic testing you've had has been that old, uh, it's it's very reasonable to 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 go back. Um, and you know, the another couple other points about the the, the technology is that um, even if we're not even looking for different genes, even if we're looking for for the for the same genes. Um, uh, there's, it's, it's been shown over years. I mean, they had this with, with, uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2, um, uh, for, for a long time, um, they were, they were sequencing these, these genes, um, but they weren't, they weren't able to identify very large rearrangements or very large changes in these genes. And so then the, the eventually the genetic testing technology improved such that they were able to to identify these large rearrangements. So people who had the very early testing where they weren't looking for these large rearrangements, you know, may have actually had a problem with BRCA1 or BRCA2 that just wasn't detectable at the time. And so I think that, you know, uh, again, as fast as genetic testing is, is, is moving, um, you know, if you have a, if you have a strong family history of, of pancreatic cancer, you know, I, I would say every couple of years you should, you should probably at, at a minimum, uh, follow up with a a uh, pancreatic cancer risk specialist, as as there there have been and there will no doubt continue to be uh, more advances uh, down the field uh, that you you can likely be able to take advantage of. And you know, I think uh, you know, um, I know we're talking a lot about the hereditary side of, of pancreatic cancer, but you know, the 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 benefit to finding uh, the gene, you know, a gene that could potentially be responsible. Uh, 
is that it really helps uh, family members, um, you know, whether it be a small family or a big family, um, and knowing who has the, the risk gene versus who does not really helps family members or can help family members uh, figure out amongst themselves who is at risk, who is at higher risk, and who is at lower risk. And, and that may, may ultimately lead to um, differing recommendations for family members that are at increased risk versus differing recommendations for family members who are not at increased risk. So it really, you know, it can affect every, everybody in the family and, and can certainly affect the, the medical care that they receive down the road. So powerful. I, 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 it'll be fascinating. I mean, I guess if we had a crystal ball, right, we can look into the crystal ball. And I've said this often, you know, in, in terms of, you know, what, what if or should have, not should have, could have, but what if, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, it'd be fascinating if we could fast forward and look in like 10 years and see, like, I think genetics is going to play such a big part in everything, not just pancreatic cancer, but the more we learn about this. And I think that's the one benefit of technology, right? I mean, if we wanted to relate it to the, the crisis we're in right now with COVID, I mean, there's some genetic things that so early on that we kind of do know people with like certain compromised immune systems are, are really at large at, at being really susceptible to getting really, really sick. And for other mm -hmm. people, it doesn't seem to be that way, which is a genetic thing, right? Like that's, that's the genes that, you know, and, and what, what's going on. So it's really fascinating. It's, it's exciting. That's one of the things you know, that really gets me excited about the space, about the advances. And that's one thing, hopefully for our listeners at home, really can take to heart. And especially the families that are going through this fight is that there is a lot of work being done on the genetic side. Um, you know, we do know all cancers, the earlier we get them, the, the probability of, you know, beating these things and having better quality of life go up tremendously, you know, so this early detection piece is so critical. And, and if we can identify things in these genetic, you know, predispositions within, you know, this community, those could possibly relate to the general population at large. Um, and, and, you know, it's so fascinating to me and, and there's so many great things happening. I, I know we, we kind of all want it here yesterday versus today, but, uh, that's where the patients has to come in here with, you know, it does take time and it does take money and resources. And I know everyone's working really, really hard. I've got yeah, a, for sure. I've got a question uh, for you on a clinical side. Mm -hmm. Why in your experience, and this is a little bit of a loaded question, Bryson here. Why do you think pancreatic cancer is so bad? So from just in, in, you know, from a, uh, a treatment standpoint or a, or a delayed diagnosis standpoint or just kind of, uh, I, maybe I can touch on all those. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a loaded, loaded question. So you can go in, yeah. in a lot of directions, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I'll kind of, I, I deal more on the, the early, early detection side. So I think I, I'll speak, speak more to that side, but you know, the, the, the reason that I, I foresee it is, is being so bad is that there, there are a few cancers, uh, that I, that, you know, can, can be, uh, that are considered kind of, uh, unresectable or, or, or untreatable with curative therapy, um, when, when they remain so small. Um, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that the pancreas in and of itself sits in, in the middle of, uh, you know, so many important, uh, um, you know, vascular structures, um, nerve structures and other things, uh, in, in, in the middle of the, uh, of, of the abdomen. And so I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it amazes me that, you know, even these, you know, couple centimeter tumors, um, you know, are oftentimes, uh, you know, they may be, may be detected, but they're oftentimes, uh, un, un, unresectable just given the, given their location. And, you know, trying to fight a, you know, a couple centimeter, uh, size tumor with, you know, with, with chemotherapy or some other sort of, uh, systemic therapy, um, is, is so much tougher than if you could just, uh, you know, surgically remove that tumor and then, and then fight, uh, you know, small, small metastases. Um, but I think that that, you know, that, that really kind of gets married. I did want to make sure that we did have, while I was talking a little bit more about the, the early detection, 
piece and, and ways that we we can uh, do early detection. And also, I'm not sure if you've had much about this on the podcast, but uh, what what the challenges of early detection are um, and why it's so difficult for us to find uh, appropriate ways to uh, detect these cancers uh, early. Um, that's something be yeah, let's talk about. To, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've we briefed on it, I mean, and clearly, but, uh, you know, I, I think this is important for our listeners at home because this is part of why things are so bad, right? I mean, the, you know, it is the hardest cancer to detect. I mean, I'll go out on a limb and, and stick my neck out there, but, you know, there is no early detection, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, so <laughs> it's a challenge. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I think I, you know, I think you know when you when you talk about early detection, basically, you know, you're you're thinking about a, a screening test. Um, you know, if you think about other cancer screening tests, you know, so like breast cancer, you know, you have mammograms, you know, colon cancer, you have colonoscopy, um, and so you have, you know, there are a lot of good screening tests out there, but, but you know, for for cancer. Um, there's several benchmarks. It's very hard to get, it's very hard to have a good screening test. So, you know, one, the, the screening test has to be able to uh, pick up the cancer at an early stage. Number two, it has to allow the cancer to be treated, uh, you know, in some different modality that's going to be more effective. And then third and most importantly is that, you know, uh, after you do all that, ultimately you need to, to save lives and, and let people live longer. Uh, af- uh, afterwards, um, you know, so I had this discussion with, with patients a lot, but, you know, if you have a test that's going to find a cancer, you know, one year, one year earlier, but then everybody still succumbs to the cancer at the same time, you know, really, really that test is not uh, a good, a good screening test. Um, and so for, for pancreatic cancer, you know, for all cancers, I'd say that the, the bar to find an effective screening test is just is just very, very high. And I think some of the things that make it so difficult for pancreatic cancer are that uh, uh, the, these cancers uh, get to the point where they're unresectable uh, uh, very, very quickly. Um, and so it makes it makes it very, very tough to catch them kind of at that that early point where they're where they're very small. And where they can ultimately be treated with with surgery, because we think you know at this point surgery really is the uh, catching them when they're surgically operable is really the only way to definitively uh, cure someone uh, uh, of pancreatic cancer. And so, uh, you know, one of the, one of the areas that that we've been working on a lot at Penn is is actually looking at, at blood based tests for uh, for early detection of pancreatic cancer. Um, we we I mentioned the the. One study, the uh, PAMFAM study, which maybe some of your listeners are participating in, certainly some of your prior podcast uh, uh, member uh, podcast folks have uh, participated in as well. Um, but but you know, I think that that's that's one test. But there's we certainly don't know if that's going to be uh, the right test. Um, I'd say over the years, there's been many groups who have studied uh, basically different biomarkers to look for pancreas. Cancer, and when I when I say biomarker, basically what I'm referring to is something that can be detected in the blood um, that that may uh, kind of hint towards there being an early pancreatic cancer. And there's really been a lot of research in this field. Um, there's been you know things that you can look for in the blood. You can look for certain proteins that are secreted from uh, from cancer cells. You can look for uh, pieces of tumor DNA that that have been kind of uh, sloughed off of the cancer and are floating around in, in your blood. Um, and one of the other areas where we've been focusing a lot on recently is uh, looking for these things called extrazo- uh, extracellular vesicles or exosomes, which are these uh, small little uh, uh, kind of uh, transport transporter uh, buds that bud off of uh uh, cancer cells and can be detected in the blood as well. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the challenge with early detection for pancreatic cancer is, and what, you know, at least what we feel at Penn is that we, I think it's probably going to take a combination of multiple different markers um, uh, and, and, and looking at multiple different markers all simultaneously to really, uh, uh, you know, uh, make the, make the test, uh, uh, make the test kind of good and, and, and predictive. So it's a pretty, pretty, uh, a, a very, very high bar. 
Um, we have a paper uh, that that is accepted at, at clinical cancer research and should be out, maybe may be out uh, in, in print by the time this uh, podcast uh, comes out. Uh, last author on the paper is uh, one of my col- close colleagues, uh, Erica Carpenter, um, where we uh, looked at a kind of what we call a uh, multi-analyte approach. We uh, looked at these uh, extracellular vesicles. We looked at the tumor DNA. We looked at proteins um, and came up with a, a signature uh, that was, uh, that at least in our initial study, was very good at differentiating uh, pancreatic cancer from no pancreatic cancer. Um, and, and so I think that, uh, you know, it's work like this that I think really excites me and, and gives me some hope that, you know, in the future we'll have uh, a blood test that, you know, one could tell you uh, who, who may, you know, have an early pancreatic cancer brewing um, or also a blood test to, that, that may help uh, kind of determine who may be at, at risk for uh, a more aggressive disease or, or disease progression uh, down the road as well. And so this is, I know we're not the only institution, there's uh, many institutions that are working in this area, but I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly important area and really has the, the potential to uh, change uh, how individuals, either with pancreatic cancer that's been, that's been treated already, or individuals who may be at risk of pancreatic cancer, uh, how, how these individuals are, are managed. That's awesome. So comment to that and, and you know I, I think there's been some nihilism as well in the in the space about like a blood test and maybe not in the space but in the general public like will there really be a blood test that you know can mm-hmm. say that you have cancer or have this and, and and the answer is yes because we know what like prostate cancer you know it's a blood test the psa if your psa is over you know i think it's six then that's a high range um you know so so it, it works for other cancers the key here though, Bryson, correct me if I'm wrong, is though to find this early, we've really got to stress here for those patient and those families to really get into these clinics like a UPenn and many that are working, you know, similarly throughout the country and throughout the world. We'll talk about preceding here in a minute. But that's really critical because then those folks are giving blood every year or every six months, whatever the the requirement is, versus someone who is asymptomatic and then goes and gets a blood test. And by then, then that's that's not early detection. That's like being reactive, not proactive. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I, um, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges, you know, for, for, for validating, you know, these early diagnosis, um, these early diagnosis modalities are really, you know, getting, getting patients involved um, and getting, and getting people involved. Um, And so that's, it's not something that any one uh, institution can do alone. Um, So, you know, Penn can't do it alone, you know, uh, no hospital uh, in, 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 in the world can do it, do it alone. Um, And the reason is, is that in order to validate these tests um, you need you know, you need not just hundreds, but you need thousands of patients uh, uh, in, in involved, um, because ultimately, um, you, know, you know, in order to have the the appropriate statistics and uh, make sure the test the test is working appropriately well, you just you you really need those numbers. And so, I think that you know, our 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 desire for uh, uh, advancing this this research and and developing blood tests that can lead to either early detection or could potentially help in, in staging uh, or, or with pancreatic cancer recurrence after, after treatment, um, you know, uh, getting institutions to, to collaborate and work together um, and, and, you know, share, uh, share samples, uh, bio samples is, is really uh, so critically important. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, as I know we're going to talk talk about, but this is uh, this is where I think Proceed fills a a, a great void, um, and and which is one of the main reasons why I'm just uh, so excited to to uh, be working with Proceed and 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 be involved with the consortium. 
So on that note, that's a great segue here, Bryson. It's so, a good transition. Good transition here. <laughs> so Proceed Consortium, you guys are part of it. You guys have been with us since day one. Uh, thoughts, feedback uh, for our audience listening at home, the Proceed Consortium has been funded by Project Purple. We help fund the database. Um, we hope to fund a lot more projects within this. Uh, we're working on a couple right now. This is why we need your support. Um, but is a worldwide consortium right now of 35 groups worldwide with this goal of helping to develop early detection diagnostics, tools, screening, surveillance for pancreatic cancer. So I've got a question yeah, so, for you. I'm precede though. First, Bryson, where do you see the strength in precede? I'll start there. Yeah, so um, there's there's several strengths. And I'll have to, I just have to mention, Dino, you know, that, yeah, I've, uh, um, you know, myself, I've been the, the pen representative for, for Proceed. And, and, and I got involved with uh, from basically from, from day one. And I still remember the, the first meeting that we had back in uh, December of uh, uh, 2018. And, you know, at that point, you know, we, I think it was like maybe 10 or 15 of us sitting in a room and, and uh, it's just amazing to see how it, it has grown uh, since then. Uh, but I think that the, the, the strengths of Proceed are really, uh, number one is the numbers. Um, and, and so really to do any uh, meaningful research in pancreatic cancer early detection, you need numbers. And so, you know, we follow a couple hundred patients at Penn, which is a, which is a you know, a, a large, uh, definitely a large cohort of high-risk individuals. But, you know, if you take that and you multiply it by 20 or 30, uh, then you have a gigantic uh, cohort, uh, which, which, can, which is much more powerful for doing effective research. Um, I think, you know, one of the other big strengths of Proceed is the collaborative nature. Um, so everybody who joined this uh, consortium uh, is really coming to this consortium not because they have you know, an ego or not because they want to be the, the one person who finds the, 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 the right test. Uh, they're really coming because they, they want to contribute and they want to collaborate. And they ultimately, you know, they, they want to do uh, what, is, what is best for, for patients and for, 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 uh, for patient care. Um, and so I think that the collaborative nature is just, uh, just such a strong asset. Uh, from the consortium, everybody's really motivated to 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 work together, to put our heads together, to put our data together, and I think that that's that that plus the size is is really going to uh, uh, make it a, a transformative uh, consortium uh, for the for the pancreatic cancer community. Well, I I'm biased, of course, but I, I uh, <laughs> that's a joke. But I, in all seriousness, I, I you know this is why we we are behind this. And when you know we had this idea and talking to Dr. Simeone, and you know she was able to to get the rest of the groups involved and engaged. And I think everyone has been on board with everything you've just said. I mean, I think in you know I've always said you know, from the, the very first day of starting Project Purple that we may not be the group, but we'll work with a lot of groups that will get us there to, to the end of this mission. And, you know, maybe we'll push another group to do something that, you know, will be the reason for it, you know, and I think that's the same attitude and mindset, you know, from the clinical research side is that, you know, no one, no one institution is going to do this alone. Um, it, it's no, impossible. For sure. It's impossible. I mean, this is an insurmountable task and you've got to, there's strength in numbers. And when it comes to research, that's so critical to, to collaborate and work together. And, and it's just awesome to see, you know, back in December, just, you know, in those breakouts and everyone just communicating and then just the ideas and the sharing that's happened since then, you know, to where we are, are very close to opening, um, unfortunately with, with the crisis that we're currently in with COVID, you know, um, patients aren't going to be able to get in the clinic right now, but you know, um, it's kind of delayed things a little bit on the back end in terms of opening, you know, things up, but it hasn't deterred us from, you know, getting that centralized IRB in place and then, you know, hopefully getting some centers 
that have patients that are ready to go, uh, similar to like Penn, where you have a patient population uh, already that you know can feed into this database and then take out of the database as well with the other partners that are going to be putting information in. in. So it's really exciting. I, I can't wait. You know, it, it, we'll, we'll get through this challenge that we're facing right now, and then you know the sky's the limit for this thing to really kind of create a large impact in early detection and screening and surveillance for these high risk families. So it's super, super exciting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled and, you know, uh, agree, you know, the, uh, the COVID uh, crisis has certainly, you know, put it, put a damper on all, all research activities, but, uh, for, for now, but, but this will be, will be temporary. And, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, I know we're all excited to, to get back, uh, up and running soon. Absolutely. And I think before we started recording, I think you and I were just talking, you know, about the lessons to be learned through this crisis, just socially and, and, you know, personally, and and maybe there's some things that we're going to learn from this, you know, in terms of research, you know, in a positive way. Uh, I know a lot of research is not being done right now because the labs are closed from a safety standpoint. Um, But, you know, maybe there's some really going to be some really fascinating positives that come out of this from a research perspective, you know, time will tell clearly, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting time, but, you know, once the dust settles, um, I can't wait to get this thing rocking and rolling. Last yeah, thing. I think one, I think I was going to mention too, yeah. that, you know, one, uh, you know, one important thing that, you know, I think from, from a patient perspective, uh, that, you know, after this COVID, um, uh, uh, pandemic passes, which hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, it will be Correct, yeah. hopefully passing, uh, <laughs> passing by then. But, you know, what, what, you know, I, I do uh, worry about and, and concerns me is that, you know, I know that during this time, you know, a lot of uh, patients at high risk for pancreatic cancer are having their, you know, are foregoing their MRIs or foregoing their endoscopic ultrasounds or skipping their, you know, having to reschedule office visits. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really important uh, that, you know, once, once this pandemic passes that, that, that people get back in and, and, and get reestablished with, with their care because, um, you know, it's kind of human nature that, you know, if you have a scheduled appointment and it passes, sometimes it's hard to, you know, or things kind of fall by the, the, the wayside. But I think in the, in the high risk groups for pancreatic cancer, you know, I mean, you, you know, we really don't want that. Uh, we don't want that time to, to, to elapse, uh, too much. And so, you know, I, I certainly, for myself, I'm trying to keep a list of the patients who have had to be rescheduled so that, you know, once we know when things are opening back up, we can get them back in. But, you know, I encourage patients too, uh, when I speak to them, I'm like, if you don't hear from us, you know, please be proactive and call us and, you know, get rescheduled, uh, as soon as, as soon as operations get started again, because, you know, uh, you know, really, you know, a couple month delay is probably okay, but I certainly, I don't want it to to go any longer than that. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Bryson, my last question here for you, and this sometimes is the most important one because we've given some great information out today for those people that you know, have been touched by this disease or have questions, um, you know, maybe they have had family members, distant family members, um, but have further questions. What is the best place for people to reach out to you if maybe there was something here on the podcast, maybe they live in the Philadelphia area in the Northern Maryland, Delaware area, and want to come in and, and meet with you guys there at the clinic, what's the best way that for them to do that? And I know right now is a, a little bit of a fluid situation. So let's just play pretend that everything goes back to normal. And when this airs, you know, they would actually follow the normal procedure. Cause I know you guys have made some adjustments, uh, you know, in the interim to deal with the crisis that we're currently in. Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, several different ways, uh, that they can get, get in touch. So we have all the information about our, our pancreatic cancer risk management program is, is on our website. Um, and, and it's, uh, pen with two N's penmedicine.org backslash uh, GI cancer genetics, all one, all one word. Um, and uh, th- that has all the information about our pancreatic cancer risk management program. Um, um, if you prefer to prefer to, to call us to, to schedule, it's 215-349-8222. Or I tell people, you know, it's, it's totally fine to just email me directly. Um, 
you know, that's oftentimes the, the easiest way to make sure that, that we can uh, get people in, you know, when, where they, they, they need to be. And, and uh, my email is Bryson, B-R-Y-S-O-N dot Katona, K-A-T-O-N-A at Penn Medicine, all one word, dot U-Penn dot E-D-U. And, 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 uh, you know, any of those modalities will, 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 uh, get you to somewhere, uh, so that, so that you'd be able to, to, uh, to get in to see us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Bryson, thank you for being a guest on the project purple podcast. Thank you for what you do for the pancreatic cancer community. And thank you for running for us. Your medal is actually on its way. Uh, we're, we're shipping. We, I have been adhering to the stay at home guidelines as best as possible. I have been sneaking back into the office to check the mail for checks and anything urgent, uh, from our patient population. Uh, but the medals did just come in. And so we're hoping to get those out early next week. So you'll have your, uh, your project purple New York city half medal, which you definitely earned. Oh, well, thank you, Dino. Yeah, this has been, been a pleasure. You know, it's been a pleasure, uh, you know, getting to know you and, and working with Project Purple. And, you know, I really look forward to uh, continuing to, to grow our, our friendship and our, you know, relationship uh, down, down the road for the years to come. Awesome. I can't wait. As we say here on the Project Purple Podcast, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you love what you hear, please follow us where you listen to this podcast on SoundCloud, on iTunes, share us, share the love, and thank you for listening. Until next week, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. (laughs) 